Hi, this is Tamson Granger. So Dan Apuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, February 10th, mm. 2019. It's the Grammys tonight. <laughs> okay. Okay. Are we watching the Grammys? I have no idea. All right. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, we don't usually we watch could do the that Grammys. if we want to. We could. We have that. We have a television set. Um, I don't know. Or we can just uh, catch the highlights on YouTube at another time. I know you have Um, a stake in the Grammys this year. Other than that, oh, it's Valentine's Day this week. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, get your shopping done. Well, you can mention, what are we going to see on Wednesday night we're going out? We're going to see Diana Reeves. Reeves, of course, Diana Reeves, who we've seen before, who's great. And she's giving a concert at McCarter Theater in Princeton. So how could we not go? Yes, very romantic. Yeah, it is very romantic. You're coming home early. It's my idea. It's, it's, to I'm, go to it. I'm impressed so, with myself. How fun is that? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wednesday night. Uh, all right. So. So this week, though, we're busy as always. Uh, busy, busy, busy. And we went last night. We got to start with the movie we went to last night. We saw They Shall Not Grow Old. You know, sometimes you give a heads up about what we're going to talk about. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to do that. Isn't that that your job? I didn't realize that. Okay. So we're going to talk about a movie and a play. We're going to talk about a fair bit of sports, including a new league that's come online, uh, the passing of one of the great baseball players of all time, uh, some odd things about the uh, NBA and and the wind in the willows, if you can believe it, and bird sex. So there are all kinds of reasons. Can't get enough of that. You're in charge of that. All right. right. So They Shall Not Grow Old, a documentary. We've talked about it. Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame, Mr. New Zealand, has put together this film, which is based on archival footage of World War I, uh, they've done a miraculous cleaning up of this footage. Uh, they've colorized it. They've added sound. Uh, they've made it run smoothly. They've brought the real people in the footage to life. And it is quite evocative of actual doings during World War One. And we saw it this weekend, and it was quite compelling, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes, I agree. The interesting thing is it is entirely the archival footage. Right. And uh, so they have worked computer magic mm-hmm. with it. And uh, it's kind of amazing the things they did. But here are some essentials. Right. Okay. Essential was Peter Jackson's introduction. Right. And then at the end, he actually goes through and explains the process. Mm-hmm. This is separate from the movie. The movie itself well, it's not, yes. has, it's doesn't tape. even have titles. Right. has nothing. It starts, it's right into that footage, okay? No explanations, no background, um, and all the talking you hear, I would say like 90% of the speaking, or maybe more, is really from hours of actual recordings with survivors, British survivors of World War One that uh, were recorded years ago. Mm-hmm. And so they had, uh, at the end, Jackson explains that they had a thousand hours? Yeah. yeah. Hours and hours and hours of this commentary right. that they had to sort through. And they used real men and real men's well, I, experiences. Look, I think that, that's a good point. And you've seen this. I think we've seen stuff like this in museums before. They'll have sort of oral histories, if you will. 
tapes, audio tapes, of people who were at some event, lived through some doings. In this case, veterans of World War I. Very complete oral history tapes. Uh, many, many hours, as you say. And actually, I thought that was almost 50% of the experience. In other words, what he really did is not so much, it wasn't simply bringing the footage to life. It was pairing the footage with the oral histories. And that's what made it work. If you had just shown the footage without the, the oral histories, the real people, it wouldn't have landed, and, and vice versa. And they are detailing their feelings yeah. and their experiences. And, it, and in some cases, they say, you know, I haven't talked about this. Right. And I haven't thought about this for years, it's, but this is what happened. Mm. And these, some of these kids are 17 years old yeah. when they're going through well, this. Well, the actual experience, I mean, we have to warn people, it's vivid and it's rough. Uh, it is. I mean, what they what comes across is how awful it was. Yes, to be which, an infantryman which in I World think we War One. I. I mean, well, there's one thing of knowing it; it's another thing to experiencing it the way this movie has you experience. I it. have to say, yeah, um, being American, I think we're not quite as right. familiar with uh, both the archival footage. Which Peter Jackson, when he interviews it, he when he introduces it, he says, "Oh, we all know these films. We've yes. seen them hundreds of and times." I think he's serious, I, <laughs> and I, I'm sure for the yeah. British public, it's true, right? But not so much for right. us. So there's a little bit of uh, you know, um, right? You know, we have to catch up to some extent. We're not as familiar, as intimately familiar with the chronology and everything that was but, going but on. But it was, it is so compelling. And, he's, and he says at the end, and he, I, he, one of the characters says at the end, it, they describe this awful experience. There's death all around. And, and, and it's described as an artillery-driven war, which means that the soldiers are getting killed by this artillery. That's the way it goes, both the Germans and the English. Uh, and it's just awful. And the, to the extent that there are survivors, obviously there are some survivors, but many don't survive. These kids come back. They're not even greeted as heroes necessarily because the way the war is described by internal or within a country's PR or whatever, they don't describe it as so awful. So they come back and people don't know what they went through to the extent that one of the, the, the witnesses, one of the oral history says, I'm describing it to my father. He's saying, well, I don't think that's exactly right. <laughs> and he's saying... I was there. I was there. Yeah. And he says, well, I, that's not my understanding. <laughs> and so, yeah. It's awful. But the other thing you touched on, I think, is worth coming back to. Peter Jackson is awfully charming. Unbelievably yes. charming. Yes. And he's yes. not on for five minutes. He does a 10-minute intro and a 30-minute uh, bit at the end explaining it. And he's a wonderfully uh, humorous, interesting guy. Plus, he's a World War One nut. Yes. He has an enormous collection. Right. Uh, including, I read online, he has like 40 airplanes or something oh, does he? from World War One. Well, at one point... And he has a whole business uh, that involves resurrecting these old uh, At one point, planes. he says that there's some reference to having the sound. And the sounds are very important. They said the sounds of the shells, the sounds of the rats. It's, it's unbelievable. And at one point, he says, you know, you needed the sound of an artillery gun. And he says, and I, of course, I, he said, I have an artillery gun, as one does. And... Uh, <laughs> Right. So he's he's a total nutcase. But anyway, so, uh, so we think you should see it, although you ought to be prepared. Yes, it's not it's not the, a laugh a minute. The technology of it is amazing yeah. and uh, very persuasive. It's, it's, they colorize it's worth seeing, uh, much of these films. And it's highly memorable. It will stay with you. Um, and just the straightforward, this is what it is. Uh, yeah. And he does curate it. It's not... Um, he's working with 100 hours of film right. that he's cutting down to 
two hours, roughly. And uh, he manages to do that by deciding to tell sort of a particular story rather than all the stories. It's not exactly a date movie, but I think it's uh, definitely worth seeing. So the other thing we did see this week that would have been a date, but... uh, you know, this is the nature of encores. So encores is, are just performances that go on for one weekend. We want to talk about it, and we this promote it. This is the New York City Center for those right. uh, who aren't familiar. Right. And it's revivals of old musicals, right. generally quite old. Okay, and they just do it over the course of a weekend, and they try to get some uh, stars in it, and some not uh, household names, but uh, people who are known within the Broadway community as uh, very skilled. And for some people, it's their big break uh, because it's a very knowledgeable audience. And uh, they do three different shows in the springtime. Right. And uh, I think that's a good summary. And I think the bottom line is, before I even talk about this production, is go. If you're all interested in musicals, go. And uh, so there are, two, there are three a year. There are two more. The next one's coming up sometime in March, maybe the third weekend or something like that. And there's one in April, if I recall. But Not I, always easy to get a ticket. Is that right? Yeah. Um, because subscribers have most of the good tickets. Like us, yeah. But, uh, but, if, it's, but again, if you can get a, a ticket, you'll be up in the nosebleed section with us. With us. And it's not as expensive, by the way. We pay, you know, $75 or something. But uh, in any event, so this production was uh, Call Me Madam. And... Uh, which was originally a vehicle for your friend and mine, Ethel, Ethel Merman. Merman. But see, in a sense, it's the perfect encore production, which is not to say it's super, uh, but it's quite good. But my point is it's perfect in a sense. It's reviving a musical that people don't really know well, but it's a lot of fun. And there's a lot going for it. It's a 1950 musical. I guess we're going to call 1950 musicals old at this point. What you, <laughs> should we do that? Yes, I think we can. I resisted until now, but I think now it's 2019. It's almost 70 years old, so what the heck. Uh, 1950s musical, which is not does not get revived. It's very old-fashioned. And it did, as you say, star Ethel Merman playing uh, a, a woman who thinly character. veiled, character thinly veiled, based on Pearl Mesta, who was a great Washington hostess. Uh, during that period, during that post-war period. And she would have parties inviting Democrats and Republicans. And they would drink together and do God knows what together. And it, it was a Washington in which people kind of got along in a certain way, even as they opposed each other politically. And theoretically, she influenced politics. I don't doubt with it. With her money. Right. Okay. And, uh, and, she, uh, and as a reward, she gets uh, offered an ambassadorship. Right. To- and so the story of the musical is this uh, incredibly kind of gauche, almost ugly American hostess. Right. She's an oil uh, heiress. She's got dollars to, to burn. Yeah. Um, uh, coming to a small country and... It's based uh, on Luxembourg. I think they call it something else. But uh, in any event, yeah. And, it, and it's a light 50s musical. I think that the key things to think about, number one, is Irving Berlin. And Irving Berlin, great, great songwriter, and he's a certain kind of songwriter, wrote Annie, Get Your Gun, uh, if you're familiar with that. And uh, but a million other songs, including "God Bless America," um, which turns up a couple times. It does. It does because he, he knows musical. to use his own stuff. And look, he probably I think it's a strong argument. Irving Berlin is is sort of the American songwriter of the twentieth century. Uh, not always showing up in shows, but in any event, uh, so it's got great and it has great songs. You know, "Lovely Day Today." Uh, it's a lovely day today. There you go. Uh, and uh, you're just in love, which is a duet. 
which is always designed to bring down the house. There is nothing you can take to relieve that pleasant ache. You're not sick. You're just... In yes, love. and believe it or not, they put a melody to that. I don't know why, but in any event, uh, and also I like Ike. I like Ike, and I like Ike, or we like Ike. Yeah. Uh, Ike I, is good on a mic. Yeah, and the introductory song, the hostess with the mostess, which is a little risque, so we're not going to get into that. But the fact is, uh, they it's an Ethel Merman thing. Now they didn't have Ethel Merman; she was unavailable for this, so uh, they were a little hamstrung there. They had uh, Carmen Cusack do it. Carmen Cusack was the star of Bright Star, the Steve Martin musical of a year or so ago. She's very nice. She's very talented. She did very well. She's not Ethel Merman. So she you missed Ethel Merman once in a while, in particular in the opening number. But on balance, she did very well, I thought. Uh, the other folks in the cast, Ben Davis was great as the male lead. Uh, a fellow named Jason Gotai, who happened to be Spider-Man during that musical, was in a supporting role. Did a lot of fun in a scene with Carol Kane and Daryl Hannah of Saturday Night Live. Um, Internet uh, sensation Randy Rainbow that, did a turn. That's not a name I know, but he's in it. And uh, it was funny. It was funny. It was fun. Uh, the Times review was a little underwhelming, but that's that's the Times problem. Oh, but uh, there were worse reviews, actually. <laughs> but they're and wrong. I, I sort of agree. You need a larger-than-life comedian. But it was. But my my, my in the role. The bigger point. And Kuzak was lovely. Yeah, but she's but, not a uh, filmmaker. She, you was, know, she was miscast in a sense. But she was miscast. But here's right. my main point. It was fun. I was glad I went. I'm sitting there in the first number saying she's miscast, and I still was glad I went. It's I just weird the show. how many of those songs I know. Yeah. I they're mean, great it's, songs. It's not, they they're great. great. I'll tell you one thing that was in the review, the Jesse Green review in the Times. He said they're, quote, second drawer uh, Irving Berlin songs. That's wrong. These are top drawer Irving Berlin songs. These I are think, these I are think excellent songs. you keep songs. some of your gems in your second drawer so that no, these, uh, these, people don't get to them. These are top songs, okay? okay they are top songs. And, but my point is, coming back, see encores, go to encores. It's it's fun. It's not not everything's you know a smash, but it's it's worth going to. Um, all right, so we're going to talk just for a minute about hockey because yesterday was National Hockey Day. I wouldn't know this, but the Wall Street Journal let us know. It was National Hockey Day in Canada. Canada's National Hockey that's, Day, that's in which the... they feature a TV marathon of hockey games, yeah. um, such that, you know, one out of four Canadians is watching the TV to see that marathon yes. on ha- Hockey Day. Well, okay. So it's very popular in Canada. Yes, but there, what was informative about the journal, they had a long article about how na- how ice hockey was founded. It wasn't a long article. It was a little article. It seemed long it's to a, me. Amanda Foreman, they don't, who is in charge of Historically Speaking, right. and gives us the historic she background the truth is she of whatever is interesting. The woman doesn't know who started hockey. I wouldn't write an article about who started hockey if I didn't know who started hockey, and she doesn't know. She says you she, that you do see it, it. Well, she knows a fair amount. There's a fair amount known about field hockey. Yes. Not, How it gets on the ice would, is not uh, too well documented. Well, but that's but what there, matters. There is in the painting, Hunters in the Snow, well, yes. by Bruegel. Of course, it's always a painting. 1565. Why couldn't they take a photograph? 1565. You see people playing You've hockey. shown me the painting. It's unbelievable. There are people playing hockey, ice hockey, in 1565, according to this painting. But the question is about the Mi'kmaq. Indians of Nova Scotia. 
uh, it seems clear they were playing hockey at quite an early date before the uh, European invaders arrived in the 16th century, but we don't know how far back. But nonetheless, by the 19th century, the Mi'kmaq Indians are the largest producers of hockey sticks. Yes, the other thing that happened in that century, two things that happened in the 19th century. Number one, uh, Charles Darwin apparently is identified as a serious ice hockey player, if you can believe it. And number two is, improving on what was going on in the Bruegel painting, in which they're playing on a pond, someone comes up with the idea of a rink. Why is a rink important? Because they stop losing the puck, all right? Now when they hit it in the edge, they don't lose it. So uh, that big advance starts uh, setting up hockey for a future success. Oh, is that what she means by the first indoor hockey exactly right. game was played in 1875? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so there you go. So now they're playing, uh, and so we've got Hockey Day established. And but uh, the one thing she does mention is the Canadians invented every aspect. Yeah, sure. Stanley Cup rules, oh, yeah. size, the yeah. rink, they get full et cetera. Credit. They get full. Listen, it's their game. When I when I was growing up, and we paid attention to hockey because there was the New York Rangers. You know how many uh, American players there were in the National Hockey League? One. Right, and we talked yeah. about this. And now. I'm not. And I'm it's, not that it's old. Kind of flip flop. I'm a young guy, and yeah. there's just and there's just one. So now I just we started talking about this before. We won't dwell on it, but there, you know, there, there are developments in hockey as in every other sport. And the latest development in hockey, which is really be, uh, very significant, they've changed the way they do the power play. They've yes, changed which the line. You, you were anxious to tell me about. Well, I was I anxious. Guess in case I'm involved in any games. Of course. You can't, <laughs> of course. Defenseman, you want me to set up properly. Well, there are two things I have to tell you, okay? Tamsin, of course, played hockey in college. Two things you have to know. Uh, number one is uh, they come up with a new formation. You were telling me that you always set up in a box which is the way it was normally done, and the box would have a defenseman at each point. They're called the points when you were on a power play. Right. They and don't do the that anymore. It collapse. And, all right. It could move from side oh, to side. Oh, there you go. There, there yeah. we go. Variations on the theme. I, I it's cool the, coming I love back the to you. visual. Yeah, of okay. It. Okay, so you would be completely at sea if you walked on the rink today to play hockey because they now play a 1 For 3 more 1. More than one reason. <laughs> this here. is the only reason. They play a 1 3 1. A 1 3 1, not a box. They can do this because there are two reasons. Number one, the players are more skilled, perhaps, than ever in terms of handling the puck. And number two, they don't play it with two defensemen. They only play one defenseman. Oi. You'd be out of a job, possibly. Hmm. One defenseman. Everyone else is an offensive player because they, they press it. And in fact, they now succeed. The top teams succeed on 25% of power play chances with this formation, which is a very high percentage. Compared to? Used to be much less. Used to be under 20%. Really? Yeah. Right. I would say that they score most of their goals away, but there well, are fewer power play chances. Now I'm informed. Yes, good. <laughs> get your skates sharpened. You'll be. I don't want you to sound do like you don't know to what's get my going. My skates sharpened, yes, yes. Uh, and that's a pain in the butt. Yeah. Well. But, uh, anyway. Uh, bird sex. Bird sex. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Do your worst. You know, I guess it's it's funny that there are so many bird sex articles is it, in the New York Times. Is it funny? Uh, I guess there are a lot of birds, so I guess there's a lot of bird sex. Yeah. But anyway, this week's bird sex is all about the hummingbird. Right. Now, it turns out the hummingbird is a pretty interesting bird. I mean, uh, we've always known that, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the um, In fact, the Aztecs uh, were very impressed by the hummingbird. Their god of war was a hummingbird, Yeah. Um, which seems... 
uh, counterintuitive, doesn't well, it? Well, but anyway, the hummingbird, even though it's so small, it has this long beak. And in fact, some of them are hooked and spiked. And uh, they can do amazing things with it. And the men, the male hummingbirds are very aggressive with these beaks. So um, they are able to, uh, they have to fight off rival mates, you see. This is called sexual selection, right? A narrow part of natural selection. And uh, it relates to the improvement of mating champion uh, chances for being the dominant force here. Sure, it's, it's, okay. it's just like the words for people. Yeah. Right, okay. So they, uh, the males use their bills. These cute little lovely birds use these bills to stab other males, yeah. also to fence. Yeah. You know, imagine, they, you know, like parry and, right. you know, um, faint, etc. Uh, sometimes knocking the other bird off its perch. And so they have territorial areas, different birds, you know, different species have different kinds of territories, some big, some small. Well, but what's interesting to me is I, people took a while to figure this out. They just thought the bill was shaped this way so it was easier to feed. Well, they had made certain assumptions right. about how they actually use that. Right, but now uh, it turns out they use it to fight. That's that's the revelation, isn't it? Yeah, no, but they also feed differently using the mechanics of using their tongue mm-hmm. and this forked tongue and the beak as they feed are different than they were thought. Yeah. A, a um, I guess, what do you call him? A scientist, Dr. Rico Guevara um, at the University of uh, California in Berkeley is doing amazing research mm-hmm. that uh, people are fascinated by a lot of it involves videos uh but uh anyway he's finding out a lot of new and interesting things let me explain some of the reasons that uh the hummingbirds are so fascinating have to do first of all they have the highest metabolic rate Mm -hmm. of uh, any vertebrate and uh, so that's interesting you know what that means that means uh they have a high heart rate that means they need a lot of food, <laughs> okay? Uh, so you have to be sure of, uh, yeah. you know, your energy. Um, and so that's why the mechanics of how they feed is so important. Although they say you don't necessarily have to be the most uh, efficient feeder uh, if you have a lot of flowers around. So that, again, relates mm-hmm. to uh, the territory as well that they um, command. And also... They are the best at hovering. Mm, Oh, I knew that. Which is the most expensive, in this case, form of locomotion in nature. Mm. And of course, many people, many engineers and designers are interested in their way of hovering. Okay, how do you do that? How do you replicate that in robots and other machines? So this research is kind of interesting, but, you know, it is still, don't you think, um, kind of funny to think about these beautiful little birds being aggressive and deadly? Yeah, well, that's the the revelation. No one suspected that except the Aztecs. Well, I think some people suspected it, but it wasn't uh, the average bear. There's also an interesting article about a cardinal. And this article is in the New York Times. It's by Karen Weintraub. And it uh, describes a um, uh, 
couple who find in their backyard in Erie, PA, a cardinal that is half male and half female. On And this is easy to spot in cardinals because, you know, the male cardinal is that bright red. Mm. And the female cardinal is kind of a t- dull tan. Right, and you all. So this all, this is half red, half tan. On one side red, yeah. split down the middle. On oh, one side God. red and one side tan. Really? Okay, which is kind of remarkable. This is called a gynandromorph. Gynandromorph. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, um, but it's not unknown to have half male, half female uh, birds, butterflies, reptiles, even crustaceans um and there may be plenty of birds that uh, are half male half female but this it's easiest to spot in um this cardinal now um there was actually in the past uh, there has been a study of uh another in the recent past like 2008 um there was a bird spotted somewhere that somebody was studying, but uh, it got kicked out of its area by a very aggressive male. So, um, you know, that was the end of that. But uh, no studies have been done really analyzing, you know, um, the actual bird Hmm. itself. They're especially curious about the brain Hmm. because apparently there's a real difference between cardinal boy brains and girl brains then the boys have much more complex songs to sing apparently um so their neural connections are different mm. and they're quite curious does he have does this half male half female have a boy brain or a girl brain or both or and or, or, or a bird brain would can be they reproduce yes. and they think yeah. that this one could reproduce because it seems to be female on the left side. Uh, it, well, it's a complicated yes, thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, let's, let's spare spare everybody that. Uh, so yeah. their eye is on what happens okay. to this All right, so keep... bird. And the woman in who's I think it's a retired biology teacher. Um, there, you know, it's very exciting for them. <laughs> you know, they're, they're I was like, just going to say know, we should all look into our yard and see if we see a red and tan, um, and dial it in. Yeah, I mean, that may be hard to spot on its own anyway, right? Because mm. if it's flying by, you may not see the other side. So we may have had many of them. You yeah. just didn't notice. Well, well, so we've got to notice. I'm putting you in right? charge Dixon, of that. Yes, take yes. a look. I mean, Dixon has a fabulous bird feeder set up right by I think a, a camera is what you need, yeah. So we better spot it. We see. I don't see too many cardinals. All right. Well, while you're looking at cardinals, I'm going to be looking at football because football has not ended. Everybody thinks it's over. But it's not. The Alliance Football League is upon us, Thompson, as you now know. Yes, I know. We saw it for about five minutes last night. That's all we could take. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that, but uh, <coughs> yeah, I'm not. Uh, well, they they surely are promoting it like crazy. Well, let's just explain it quickly. We're not going to dwell on it. Every few years, somebody's trying to start a new football. You're right. League, right. Yes, and so uh, a lot what? of money in football. Right. Apparently. Oh yes, there is. So Alliance football is a little different. Uh, they're really uh, they're trying to make nice with the NFL. I was curious whether they're owned by the NFL. They're not. Uh, they are owned. There's common ownership, though. Here's what I mean by that. There's an organization called the Alliance Football League. There are investors in that league, some prominent investors, people with a lot of money. Uh, they own every team. 
It's not like the NFL where there are different owners of each team. So they're not competing in that way. It's just common ownership. And Oh, and they just have all these different yes, teams. Yes, they all they own the teams. it down exactly. in various places. It's like a reality show. That's interesting. Right? And, and they are putting, they're stocking those teams with rosters made up of local players, local college people. People succeeded on a local level, so people know them. But they didn't quite make the NFL... But, you know, the team in Texas is going to have San Antonio because they have somebody play for Texas A&M, that kind of thing, to try to build some interest. You ask how they'd be interested. That's how they're going to be interested. They're going to see people that they've seen before in, in a different level of competition. Because uh, I was shocked for the first game in had, San Diego how many people they had in the stands. The other thing, the tickets are cheaper, much cheaper than the NFL. The hot dogs are cheaper. They make a big point of that. And they're trying to get people in the stands, and uh, they're going to see what they do. They're uh, they're trying to promote themselves as a feeder league to the NFL, even a minor league to the NFL. I don't see how that works. I don't see how it works either. But and, and I think it's I think that's crazy. Well, we'll see. We'll find out because they had they did pretty well last night. We'll see how they do today. And they're going to be around for about 10 weeks or so. They're, they were talking about how if they got these guys more experienced, maybe they would be NFL worthy. Yeah, but you're missing but one, one angle. The angle that you and I were talking about last night. I, yeah, I think it's just for betting. It's for gambling. Yeah. And they're setting it up for gambling. There's an app that's going to allow you to follow things in a very granular way. And ultimately, that app is going to allow you to bet in a granular every way. Step. And on one, every play. One of the investors in the league is MGM. You know, it runs the casino. That's what it's about. It's about a different way of betting. So, I think this is a bad thing. Is it a bad thing, or is it just think it's no, not going to be No, I think it's a bad thing. It's not that I'm against gambling. Yeah. I mean, that's somebody's choice. Yeah. What I think is bad yeah. is football. Well, the football is not going to be good. I mean, they're they're drawing Over these exposure. people. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, I mean, these guys are going to get injured uh, more than more the NFL players. No, but you know, why would you want to? Um, have more chances for the brain damage, etc. They're not being paid poorly. And They're paying pretty well. I know, but still, it's uh, Look, can you get, be paid well enough for the brain damage? If, no, no, that no. Results? Forget the brain damage. If you're against oh, football, Daniel, and the arthritis if, if you're and against, all the things that affect these If you're these against guys, football, you're against football. Then, then you're against the NFL, and fine. But I mean, most of the country seems to be very comfortable with that. So the question is, uh, what do you think about fine. this? Fine. If these guys understand that it's going nowhere, fine. But if they are living on a dream that they're going to work their way up to the, that's NFL, where they are. Yeah, and you know something? They're some, lying to those guys. Well, some of them will. Some of them will. I don't approve. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, go ahead. You had the, the NBA doc. Well, fashion. <laughs> I mean, let's get... It's not fashion. It's about sports. You can't get yourself it's out of sports. the NBA. Well, yeah. first of all, not, you know, the NBA, very fashion conscious. Yes, sadly, okay? it's true, yes. Why is that sad? Because no one cares. I don't care about that. It, well, it, well, you're wrong, because even a cardinal knows... You got to look good, okay? <laughs> the male Cardinals are trying to look good. Yeah, all right. You know? yeah, and okay. so are the male NBA players. Not for me. What can I um, say? Yeah. I mean, not too long ago, they were they were being super sloppy. Right. And then in uh, 2005 or something, David Stern says, hands down the edict that you at least have to do business casual. So they upped their game. Okay, I, I even saw something on, on a TV news program this morning yeah. about how cool uh, basketball players look when they arrive at a game. Well, look, their half of their life is getting on planes, getting off planes, arriving at foreign cities. That's what we're talking about. And right. it used to be they all wore sweats, and now they're all dressed up. Because of social media. Yeah. There's a picture of them everywhere. Yeah. But 
part of the outfit is the dop kit, mm. which blew my mind. Big article in the Wall Street Journal, almost an entire page about dop kits. Mm. To be honest, I just threw away your dop kit. No, it's too you bad. You haven't used it in a million years. Well, it's when I was because, in the NBA. Yeah. Because every time we go somewhere yeah. and we're flying or whatnot, you got to have your toiletries in the little plastic bag right. so they can be inspected. Right. So um, so you are not having the Louis Vuitton well, well, uh, can, dop kit. Can I kit. explain one thing that you might have overlooked here and the article might have overlooked about their traveling? And I know they're not necessarily getting on an airplane here, but even if they're on an airplane, these guys take charters. They're not going through security like we're going through security. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of discussion. I didn't of, think of so. The inspection of okay. the top kits. It's more about walking they, from. I'm seeing the photos. Walking I, into the venue yeah. and they're carrying. I mean, it says after the Miami Heat drafted Dwayne Wade in 2003, he quickly deduced that the top kits his NBA teammates used to carry into the uh, locker room telegraphed status. Okay, all the older vets had that. Wow, right? that's some time um, ago. He's been in the league for ten years. Okay, uh, they to a rookie guard like Mister Wade, seeing the seven hundred dollar leather bags the vets carried, um, he they basically shouted, "I've made it!" Really? Okay, okay. He said, "You don't want your toiletry bag to be busted." He said, oh, "If God. you're coming in with a nice outfit, you don't want to be." Uh, seen with a CVS bag. Oh, man. I would not fit in. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mainly because you have a Dwayne Reed bag. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so then, uh, so this article describes uh, the different bags, yeah. gives you some ideas of ones you can buy, ranging from 760 bucks yeah. for the Louis Vuitton or down to uh, $34 uh, alternatives. But they're also Versace, Toomey, etc. And they quote various, uh, you know, players yeah. and what's important about the dop kit and what they carry. Obviously the toiletries, but, uh, you know, deodorant, lip balm, cologne, maybe your game uh, device, maybe your cell phone, etc. So it's kind of uh, interesting to think about these big guys. The other thing is it's not just the conventional little square bag with the strap on the end. People are using fanny packs. Mm. The sales of fanny packs yeah. apparently have doubled. But they're not strapping, the around, they're not strapping so. them around their waist. They're no, carrying no. Yeah. They sling them over their shoulder. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. a woman with, like a mini messenger yes, bag, right. shall we say. You almost said and, like a woman. Uh, I heard that. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, uh, one of the uh, quotes they have is from Kelly Oubre. Yeah. Is that how you say his name? Never heard of him. He's, he plays on the. He's a forward on the Phoenix Suns. So they say he calls his yeah. his Merce. Yeah, good for like him. Man purse. Okay, and they asked him, "Do people uh, tease them about it?" He says, "No." You know, yeah. no one comments on my Merce. Nobody teases. They NBA know players. I'm very much different than anybody else. I'm going to be the wave leader. Yeah. Okay. So that's it for all you guys out there who have been missing their dop kits. Yeah. That's what I was missing. That's uh, from my NBA game. Is I didn't have a dop kit. Otherwise, you know, I'd be there. But uh, really, if it's all about flying, you can't. What? Use it. Charter, charter, honey. Charters are different. When are we going to charter something? <laughs> I don't know. But the reason, the real reason the guys used to dress like slobs, 
It was because they didn't have charters. So you had these guys six foot eight trying to fit into an airplane. It was not a good thing. So once they went to charters, everything opened up. I bet Peter Jackson what? has his own plane. Well, Peter Jackson right? has a lot going for him. Uh, He's very into aviation. I, I, I wonder if he it. has a dop kit. <laughs> I don't think so. He looks more like the... Uh, I don't think he has a pair of long Dwayne pants, Reed honestly. Dwayne Reed guy. <laughs> doesn't have a pair of long pants. Most of, the, most of the stuff about him doing the technical stuff seemed to be in his living room or his bedroom. I mean, it was... He, he, had bare, he was barefoot most it, of the time. I know, it was a little upsetting. All right, he lives so, in New Zealand. Yeah. Okay. Now you're tarring an entire country with Peter Jackson. Those Kiwis. I know. They they march to their own drummer. Apparently. Um, All right. So uh, baseball, there's an article in the journal about the difference between uh, baseball on the one hand and NBA on the other when it comes to signing free agents. People are, you know, really worrying, uh, you know, about the fact that the top free agents, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, haven't been signed in, in the uh, Major League Baseball, and they feel that's somehow unjust and off-putting. And are yet, the guys worried? Is uh, Bryce Harper worried? Uh, I'll come back to that in just a second. I think the answer is I don't, I don't know if he's worried or not. It's kind of an income. It should honestly. be worried. No. Baseball's boring. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy. What's the point of paying point, these guys? Whereas the guys, money. the guys in the NBA are kingpins. They get paid and they 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 dictate. They tell their teams what to do, and they explain. They start to explain in the journal. And I, they're big. No, no, and it's they've not, got those no, dop kits. No, I, they'll hit you over the head with the dop kits. You know why? What? Because the. <laughs> Because they have a salary cap. Because they have a salary cap. There's a limit on what they can make. So because there's an artificial constraint on what the NBA players can make, they're underpaid. Even the top guys who are getting $16 million a year can influence the result of an NBA game because there's only five players on the court at the same time. So a superstar means everything. He's worth much more than $16 million. Whereas in Major League Baseball, there's no limit on what they get paid. They're trying to get $30 million a year, and they don't have nearly the influence on the outcome because there are many more players on a team in a game at one time. So why is there no cap? That's what was negotiated. That's labor relations. That's the way it landed. And the NBA union screwed up. Or the MLB union did great. And we can go into that. Did they a whole think they were story. doing a good thing by not having a cap? No. The union? No, no. They tried to do the best they could in terms of get as high a cap as they could. But they, look, the real reason, without going into detail, is at the time that was negotiated, the success of the league wasn't guaranteed. It goes up and down. Now it's, you know, doing extremely well. It wasn't always so that way with the NBA. The, the owners aren't too worried. Well, you know, we don't. No, 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 no. It doesn't need to be a salary cap. Who would pay these guys? No, it's not that. Nobody's interested. It's not that. It's that the players need the league to succeed. And if the players need the league to succeed and feel they have to take a concession for the league to concede, then they agree to a salary cap. That's why. The NBA was not a sure thing, okay? Major League Baseball is a sure thing. You may think differently, but it is a sure thing. And that's why you couldn't go to the players and say, you have to accept a salary cap, otherwise we're going out of business. No one would buy that. So you have no salary cap. The result is, if you're paying people what they're worth, well, then they have no leverage because all their leverage is expressed in the figure that they're worth. All right? So that changes the dynamic. Now, does it make any difference if these guys aren't signed? No. It doesn't. I don't know why people are excited about that. It, it just means that, you know, they're, they're holding out for $31 million and, and instead they're only going to get $30 million. It, It's meaningless, frankly. Okay. But uh, just to cut that off there for the moment and get a breath of fresh air because we're sitting here saying, are we worried about Manny Machado getting $30 million? Uh, I'm not. But Frank Robinson died this week, okay? Frank Robinson, who was a great player. Now we're not going to talk about money. Just talk about great player. 
a substantially better player than Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. It's There's no comparison. Frank Robinson, who was a 12-time All-Star, 12-time All-Star, who uh, was on the Cincinnati Reds for the first part of his career, led that team to the pennant in 1961, was their top player, got traded to the Orioles for the 1966 season, did nothing less than win the Triple Crown. No one wins the Triple Crown. That means he led the league in batting average and home runs and RBIs. I can put on count on less than the number fingers on my hand, the number of people who have done that. Led the Orioles to win the World Series in that year, right? He hit 30 home runs, 11 different seasons, 100 RBIs, six different seasons. Um, an unbelievable superstar, uh, and uh, and then he became the first black manager in the history of baseball. And on top of that, he was a player manager. And the first game that he played or managed for the Indians, he came up in the first inning and he had a home run hmm. at the age of 39. He's an unbelievable guy, all right? And on top of all the statistics, all the amazing statistics with Frank Robinson, the thing that everyone talks about is how hard he played. Mm-hmm. And what a great leader he was. Mm-hmm. An incredibly hard player. And I'll just say one more thing about Ray Robinson, just to contrast him with Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. There is a statue of Frank Robinson outside three stadiums in three different cities. In Baltimore for the Orioles, in Cincinnati for the Reds, and in Cleveland for the Indians. No one's ever going to build a statue for Bryce Harper in any city. All right? <laughs> All right? So what can you say? I mean, uh, Frank Robinson is great in a way that baseball players will never be great again, I suppose, without putting a too fine a point on it. Um, Go ahead. Just a quick uh, review from uh, the Wall Street Journal about a couple of books uh, about Wind in the Willows. The Making of the Wind in the Willows by Peter Hunt. The Man in the Willows by Matthew Dennison. And uh, the... uh, Review is by Megan Cox Gurdon, uh, who is the author of a book called The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. So I think we can both agree that Wind in the Will is a great book to read aloud. Oh, listen, I remember the Disney version of this being completely captivated by that as a kid. And even President Theodore Roosevelt was a fan. Oh, really? Yes. Well, that's, uh, that's shocking. Uh, there's a letter in one of these books from him uh, saying he enjoyed the characters that they had become. They were like old friends. Wow. And I, I think a lot of us feel that way. And uh, we've seen a variety of uh, sort of... Uh, video interpretations of Wind in the Willows. And this is the story behind, and as usual, the backstory is kind of fascinating and different and a little bit on the dark side. Yeah, upsetting is the word uh, yeah, I Yeah, upsetting. Say. And uh, actually, um, it uh, describes Kenneth and his wife, Elspeth Graham, and uh, starts with the myth Uh, about how he came up with the story and it involves them arriving late at a dinner party because uh, Graham was busy, was upstairs in the night nursery telling Master Mouse some ditty or another about a toad. And uh, And Master Mouse is their son. Is their son. Turns out their um, 
it's all a very complex story. Uh, quickly, uh, just say that uh, Graham is 40 when he gets married. He marries uh, this heiress, Elspeth Thompson, right. um, after a courtship uh, of letters that uh, are really kind of awful. Um, <laughs> and uh, where uh, Graham Kenneth is Dino, she is Minky. Uh, oh, um, this, this, yeah. Okay. Anyway, their marriage barely outlasts the honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, and all his friends are against this mm. uh, wedding, by the way. Nonetheless, they have a child. Sadly, the child is partially blind and has a variety of other disabilities, which they kind of in a seemingly enlightened way, disregard. Um, in fact, uh, um, they consider him remarkable. Um, rather than being liberated by this, yeah. he, uh, Alistair, grows up to be quite a bully and uh, kind of a conceited and nasty kid. And uh, his parents, to some extent, seem to ignore him. Oof. And they are traveling going to the seaside, he is left with nursemaids and uh, relatives and in boarding schools, and before he's 20, is found uh, decapitated on a rail line, apparent, an apparent suicide. Uh, so that's pretty upsetting. Uh, meanwhile, um, the, uh, the stories detail all the books, both books kind of detail this and uh, also some other mysteries, you know, that Graham was a clerk at, uh, the Bank of, in of England, but there's nothing in the bank's yeah, archives well, right. about him. It's as if his history has been expunged. Well, but that's, uh, there's no explanation for that. curious. Yeah, it's curious. But the, the fact of the matter is the real disconnect is between this guy who seems to be this awfully sensitive guy telling this wonderful story who obviously can't function otherwise, you know, and, and disconnects from his kid, which is kind of awful, right? Well, I don't know. I haven't read... It, it sounds, you know, it's not what we imagine. Well, how does he write this story? I mean, where yeah. does that come from? Yeah, and well, that's not clear either. And the publishing and the history leading up to it yeah. is unclear as well. Uh, to some extent, his wife, Elspeth, curated yeah. all of these things, even wrote the replies to his fan mail, yeah. etc. So I guess maybe we hold her responsible. Maybe he didn't write it. I don't know. It's too weird. It's too weird. But in this day and age where we are holding everybody responsible for their entire story, well, yes. uh, in addition this to is their not a good, body of work. This is not a good story. Uh, but it, So that's interesting and mm. a little upsetting. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll close with uh, this one other obituary. This is kind of interesting. It's not a person who's terribly notable. A woman named Julie Adams died. She's an actress who did some films with Elvis Presley, with Rock Hudson. She was you know, the female ingenue. But most famously, she was in the 1954 movie called Creature from the Black Lagoon. I've heard of that. I've never seen it. Have you? Uh, no, but uh, I can show you here a, uh, a picture, uh, and that will remind you of something. So, the, so the picture that you're Indeed looking at. Indeed, it does. Yes, it looks like the uh, creature from The Shape of Water. And uh, the in, movie that we liked so much. And it was Best Picture just a year ago, I think. So, uh, the situation uh, that she found herself in is that, as they describe in the Times, in a, one, uh, a white one piece bathing suit, 
Uh, Julie takes a swim in a murky lagoon as the creature, a reptilian terror about the size of a tall man with gills, webbed feet and hands, stalks her with backstrokes from below in a submarine uh, pas de deux, if I'm pronouncing that. Pas de deux. Pas de deux. Sounds an awful lot like our it courtship. It does. So, of course, like our courtship, like the movie. Like the movie. So what that has, was two years ago, Dan. Two years ago. You're probably right. So someone goes to Guillermo del Toro, and it, it takes some, you know, some nerve to even ask him this question, and says, you know, were you at all aware of, uh, you the know... Similarity. Yeah, the similarity to this movie. And here's what he says. Um, he says, yes, uh, he was familiar with the movie. He traced the film's genesis, The Shape of Water, to that movie, and he says, quote, the creature was the most beautiful design I'd ever seen. And I saw him swimming under Julie Adams. This is Guillermo del Toro. And I loved that the creature was in love with her, and I felt an almost existential desire for them to end up together. So that's where the shape of water comes from. Now we know. Is that crazy? All right, so uh, you never know. Uh, and right, well, let's go get ready for the Grammys. Well, well, we have to. We're going to close with some music, I believe, from uh, the World War One film, uh, and uh, it's Mademoiselle from Armitage. Uh, Parlez-vous, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and this was put together by uh, Peter Jackson uh, to uh, end the film, and it's very striking. Played her in the credits, so, so we'll play it's it. And kind of fun. You'll get the idea. So enjoy it. This yes. is Tamsin Granger and Dan Abuhat with Tamsin and Dad. Read the paper. See you next week. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, she hasn't been kissed in 40 years. Inky dinky, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Our top kick in arm and tears Broke the spell of forty years Zinky dinky parlez-vous Mademoiselle from Armitage parlez-vous Mademoiselle from Armitage parlez-vous You didn't have to know her long To know the reason men go wrong Zinky dinky parlez-vous Mademoiselle from Armitage parlez-vous Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. She's always working good in town. She makes her living upside down. Inky dinky, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. She sold her kisses for ten francs each. Soft and juicy and sweet as a peach. Inky dinky, parlez-vous Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous Madam, you've got a daughter fair To wash your soldier's underwear Inky dinky, parlez-vous I didn't care what came of me, parlez-vous I didn't care what came of me, parlez-vous I didn't care